Welcome to BIV Today. We're the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. On today's show, how the Port of Vancouver is handling record container traffic that shows no signs of slowing down. And later on, how corporate vision has made a BC First Nation one of the most successful bands in the country. BIV is once again looking to recognize BC's outstanding entrepreneurs, executives, managers, and professionals in public, private, and nonprofit sectors who are ahead of their time. Nominations for the 2018 40 Under 40 Awards close July 30th. There are a few more days to apply. Visit BIV.com slash events for details. A wide range of innovative, disruptive technologies are making payments and transactions easier for businesses. And so on September 13th, BIV's FinTech panel is going to look at how small and medium-sized businesses can make informed decisions in this new landscape. Tickets and information are available again at BIV.com slash events. Even amid a high level of global trade uncertainty, it is full steam ahead at the Port of Vancouver. The port handled record container volume in the first half of 2018, and traffic is showing no signs of slowing down. Now, it's not a bad problem to have, but it does create some capacity challenges for Canada's largest port. And joining us to talk more about that is Robin Sylvester, President and CEO at the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority. Robin, thanks for joining us. Hi there. Good to be with you. Is it just a booming world economy? Well, I think it's, it's a number of fundamentals that we see in the trade figures through the port. And if we look at containers specifically, what we're seeing is on the import side, an indicator of the strength of the, the domestic economy in Canada and really a good indicator that consumers are still buying goods that are being imported from Asia. But also a lot of people forget that containers are a big part of the export economy as well. And of course, what we have in the export side is food products like speciality grains and fruit and seafood and forest products going all around the world. And we're seeing strength in those numbers as well. So it's it's, it's a combination really of strength here at home and products Canada makes being in demand around the world, particularly across the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Clearly, your, your figures are up for the first half of 2018, but I'm curious as to whether if you start to break them down, whether trade uncertainty, tariffs, what's going on between the U.S. and other countries has had any sort of impact. Well, it, it's hard to see a direct impact in the short term. And of course, what it's important to remember is that the trade through Vancouver really is the trade that Canada has with the world beyond North America, beyond the U.S., um, and in some ways, what we expect is that, there's, if, if anything, there's an increasing emphasis on Vancouver's importance as we go forward because of the uncertainty with our, our main trading partner to the south of us. One dollar in three of Canada's trade beyond North America moves through this port here in Vancouver. And it's interesting with sort of, for example, the cabinet shuffle just recently and Minister Carr now becoming the Minister for International Trade Diversification. Yeah. Diversifying Canada's trade relationships beyond North America is going to critically depend on growing capacity here in Vancouver. Are you getting any closer to trying to resolve the challenges that you have around a land base in order to deal with the inevitable expansion? Well, to be honest, it's one of the things that concerns me the most. I mean, the industrial land in the lower mainland is is constrained. Land in the lower mainland is constrained by the mountains to our north, the border to our south and the ocean. And we've been losing industrial land to other uses at a steady but alarming rate over the last couple of decades. And that's continuing. There are some small signs of awareness of the problem growing. 
um, with and a, a good, good good step, for example, would be Metro Vancouver having created an industrial lands task force. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm concerned that we really need to move beyond awareness of the problem into action to protect the remaining industrial land and think about how we provide capacity to Canada's trade going forward. So there are some small positive steps, but there's a, a looming major problem that's that's careering towards us. Mm-hmm. And as you slowly take steps toward resolving that problem in the interim, what are some of the, the areas the port is able to, to, to work with or work on to try and facilitate and handle increasing capacity? Well, there are sort of two things we're doing. And then, of course, there's the overall advocacy to try and get some broader action on the, the fundamental problem. But the two things that we're doing are, firstly, maximizing every opportunity to sort of increase the efficiency of use of the land base that we manage. And this is in partnership with all of our tenants who operate the contain- the terminals, container terminals, or other types of terminals. Good examples of that would be the expansion by global, global container terminals that's going on at the moment at Delta Port, where what they're doing is investing several hundred million dollars to improve the efficiency of their rail yard, which will overall increase the capacity of the terminal by about 30% or 600,000 TEUs. We're also about to start here in the inner, in the inlet with Centerm with Dubai Ports World, a an expansion of Centerm that's going to be a roughly three four hundred million dollar investment. Mm. Again, increasing the capacity of that terminal by about sixty percent, with only limited increases in the land sort of the terminal, limited amount of land reclamation. So, increasing the efficiency of terminals is key. The other thing that we're doing as the port is wherever we have the opportunity is buying parcels of industrial land because that way we can preserve them in their industrial use and make sure that they don't get zoned to some other use and get lost to the industrial base. But those things alone can't possibly solve the problem. We also need, in our view, the provincial and federal government to engage in the issue along with the dialogue that's going on with municipalities because it's it's a nationally critical issue. Yeah. The port, of course, as you know, Robin, has a world-class reputation. Um, it's, you know, its leadership uh, is is considered to be fundamentally uh, very, very sound and, and the work that uh, it does in the country, of course, uh, quite important to our economy. But you had this recent uh, hiccup um, in terms of protests in the area. I wonder what kind of communication uh, the port had to make with its with its customers, with its clients about what it had to expect here in the short and medium term about the protests around uh, the Kinder Morgan Pipeline 20. Well, we work hard to, to maintain a good dialogue with the community and a good relationship with the community because that's, that's fundamentally important. And it's actually written into our mandates that we sort of we, we need to enable Canada's trade, protecting the environment and engaging with the community and considering what the community wants. But it, it, it's also important that I think that sort of the we need to have sort of the port able to continue to function. Mm-hmm. So we. The Kinder Morgan sort of issue has been a very high-profile issue. I think it's, it's sort of it's it's really more of a, an NEB and sort of national federal issue than it is a port issue. But it's very unfortunate when we get disruption to the port as a result. The specific incidents with the protest on the Iron Workers Bridge was, I think, ultimately well handled by the sort of the law enforcement authorities, and it's very much their sort of issue to handle. Um, it was addressed within sort of less than 48 hours. Um, which is is good. I mean, any disruption is bad. Uh, sort of the minimal minimal disruption is sort of if there is a disruption, we want it to be as short as possible. Yeah. But I think it's very important that sort of at the end of the day, as Canadians, we all 
absolutely fundamentally value the right to free speech. But it's really important that that happens in an appropriate, respectful and legal way. So, I mean, we, we play our part as one small part of the sort of the, the sort of the community around making sure the port is working and the sort of law is enforced. The major part of that is with the RCMP and Coast Guard. Um, but I think all Canadians have a responsibility to honor that right to free speech, but honor it in a way that's legal. Were, were the companies affected themselves, um, um, I guess, understanding that this was a, a, a transitory moment? That, that would be my assessment. I think it was because it was a relatively short disruption and the impact was very limited. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, on the first day of the disruption, there wasn't due to be any major marine traffic under the bridge anyway. Yeah. Um, but it's sort of, I think, sort of, again, it comes back to those sorts of things nonetheless damage our reputation as a nation in terms of reliability as a, being a reliable partner. And sort of they, they shouldn't happen in the first place. It's really important if they do happen, they're dealt with quickly, safely, and within the framework of the law. And really, we've got to be alert to the fact as a nation that people are watching. I mean, we're, we're not sort of, we're, we're not alone. I mean, there are other sources for all the products that we produce. And reliability of sort of supply is one of the things that's uppermost in any purchaser's mind around the world. Mm-hmm. Looking ahead, we have the CPTPP moving closer to ratification. How much activity are you expecting at the port as a result of that trade agreement once it comes into effect? Well, the CPTPP is a great example of where sort of Canada has set out its sort of stall for a long time as being an open trading nation. Um, that, that agreement is going to improve trading relationships with a bundle of um, sort of trade partners across the Pacific. Um, we already do about, have about $16 billion worth of trade moving through this port to those, those nations. Um, and it really sets the stage for growth. So it comes back to what we were talking about, that sort of the, as the gateway, as Canada's gateway to the Pacific, as Canada works through things like the CPTPP to improve its trade relationships, we can expect to see growth. That's obviously, it's good for the economy, it's good for jobs, therefore, in, in, in Canada, um, and it's good for the port. But it makes it all the more important, or it heightens that focus and emphasis on the importance of continuing to be able to support those that trade growth here in Vancouver by growing our capacity in a response way by improving the efficiency of our existing facilities and by planning to grow as required in terms of the overall facilities that we have. You mentioned earlier, of course, that both uh, importers and exporters have other choices. They can find other ports in which to uh, use for shipping. Um, if you had to identify a, a, a policy area or two that would give you um, a, a greater uh, either advantage or would reduce a disadvantage that you have where where would you go in that? I think I'd pick two policy areas that are sort of fundamentally important, and actually one's an advantage and one's a disadvantage. Um, so the first one on the positive side would be, I think the the approach the federal government has taken with the National Trade Corridors Fund is is extremely, extremely positive. I mean, they, they really, they've set out the stall that they're going to be strategic. They're going to look at the national trade corridors from a national perspective and invest and sort of provide funding to catalyze investment in those corridors in sort of the way that's most beneficial to Canada. And we're obviously delighted to have received $220 million of federal funding recently announced by Minister Garneau to invest in some of the most critical bottlenecks here in the Lower Mainland in terms of getting cargo to and from the port. So I think that's, that, that's a really positive um, sort of 
policy framework and a positive sort of um, piece of federal um, sort of funding. Um, and it, we know that that funding approach is the envy of our competitors sort of south of us because we having that very coherent strategic investment in Canada's critical trade corridors really helps us continue to increase the capacity and efficiency of those corridors at the same time as reducing the impact of trade in the local community because it the investments will be bridges over railways fundamentally that will allow yeah. commuters to get around the region without being interrupted by longer trains going into the port more frequently. Uh-huh. So that's a strong positive. Mm-hmm. On the, the more concerning side, we are very concerned about um, the risk of further delays in environmental improvement processes for projects to expand the port. I mean, Canada has a reputation, I think, unfortunately already of being slow to permit projects. And we've got a lot of changes looming through the Impact Assessment Act. Um, We really hope those changes are going to obviously preserve good environmental decision making because that's fundamentally important, but find ways to make that happen in a, in a, a quicker way. And I worry that the changes may actually slow things down further, not speed them up. Really? Um, and that would be a real problem. Really? Well, but because it, the focus publicly is of a, a federal government that is really committed uh, to, in fact, um, do better than its predecessor. Well, the federal government has a complex challenge here. And so I think what they're trying to do is do better on all fronts um, to improve consultation, to improve public engagement. And as you say, in the sort of the headlines relating to the act, also to improve the timeline. That's obviously an incredibly challenging balance to land. Um, I really hope they land it successfully in, in achieving that. But I'm worried that, for example, if you add up the prescribed timelines in the new act, they're longer than the prescribed timelines in the old act. Wow. And if you look at the breadth of consultation that's being sort of required under the new act, it's broader than under the old act. So it's a complex balance. It needs to be struck in the right place. And it really, I think, will come down to the implementation. Um, If it's implemented to achieve what's being set out in full and to achieve the faster timelines that are, are desired, that will be an advantage. The risk is that it may not achieve that. There is also a risk that we may, we, there's still consultation going on about the extent to which the Port Authority would continue to permit large projects within the port. Mm-hmm. Um, we, under Section 67 of the current Act, permit all existing redevelopment of terminals. Um, for example, the G3 grain elevator that's in construction on the North Shore at the moment was a project that we permitted. And we set out very aggressive target timelines for our permitting decisions and we have a good track record of meeting them at the same time as a good track record for making sound thoughtful appropriate environmental decisions the g3 project for example we permitted in less than 160 days and the by comparison the terminal 2 um, project that's currently that we are leading that's currently going for through a seer assessment is at the moment three and a half years into a permitting process that's probably got another two years to run. So you're talking about sort of 160 business days versus in this example, okay, a bigger project, but five and a half years. That's a huge difference. And if more projects are pulled up into the federal process without that federal process being much more significantly resourced to be much more efficient, um, we're going to see a chill on investment in the board. Who would have thought that environmental improvements would actually take longer (laughs) as opposed to shorter. Well, this is part of the frustration because the sort of projects, a lot of the projects that we are permitting as we as the port are projects that are redeveloping terminals and as a result have significant investment in 
current best practice, um, which and, and best practices change and improve all the time. So if you're if you're redeveloping a terminal that was built 20 years ago, you're almost certainly doing that development to much higher environmental standards. And as you say, it would be it would be ironic if if that was all actually slowed down and stopped. Um, because permitting processes became in sort of untenably long. Mm -hmm. Robin, as always, we really appreciate you joining us on the program. Thanks for coming on. Not at all. It's great to be here with be with you. Thank you. That's Robin Sylvester, President and CEO of the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority. Our next guest is in town for the Assembly of First Nations Annual General Assembly. Chief Clarence Louis leads the Asoyuz Indian Band, one of the most successful and entrepreneurial Indigenous communities in the country and a major economic driver for the South Okanagan. Chief Louis has served as an elected chief for more than 30 years. He's the recipient of the Order of Canada, the Order of BC, among many other awards for his economic and community leadership. He joins us today on the show to discuss the band's latest corporate plan, which was just launched this week. Chief Louis, thank you very much for joining us on the program. Good morning. It's good to be here. Now you've had a very long career as an elected chief. I'm curious whether you also consider yourself a business leader or an entrepreneur. Both. I mean, uh, most most entrepreneurs are are business leaders, and I and I believe everything rises and falls on on leadership. So whether in the business world or the political world, um, leadership is is what makes or breaks um, operations. How much is business development part now of an indigenous leader's job? Do you think? Well, going back. Um, a hundred years, a couple hundred years before the reserves were created, First Nations people were independent. First Nations were the entrepreneur, were the first entrepreneurs of this country. You know, the trade routes prove that. The archaeological evidence all proves that 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 we traded and, and did commerce uh, with people on the coast from from those in the interior. We did trade and commerce with the uh, with the tribes on the plains. So, First Nations people were always entrepreneurs. And business people until we were confined to Indian reserves. Yes. Mm -hmm. And now, in this context, what do you think it takes on behalf of a band and its leadership to to be successful when it comes to economic self sufficiency and building the business within a band? Well, leadership it always starts at the top. You always have to have leadership that that want to break away from from dependency which is the formula that's been in place for a hundred and some odd years. And that formula has never worked dependent on the federal or provincial government because they've never properly funded one program or service on the Indian reserves. And they've broken every treaty that they've ever signed with First Nations. So I, I'm telling First Nations, we've got to get back on our economic horse. There's one past national chief so rightly said many years ago, it's, a, it's the economic horse that pulls the social card. You can't put the cart before the horse. And non-native people, the G8 countries all know that, that the economy has to be the number one issue. And it's, a, it's the economy that pays for every health program, educational program, every social service program. So First Nations have to start making their own money and creating their own their own revenue. Yeah. You would have a, a great vantage point and, um, on the bigger picture here. Tell me, how close are we getting to a kind of a true nation-to-nation -nation partnership and arrangement in this country? 
Yeah, that's the other word I don't like when I hear from the federal government or politicians, provincial or federal. No? Nation to nation. Mm-hmm. You can't have nation to nation. One nation is dependent, totally dependent on the, on the other. That's, that is not a nation to nation relationship. What I've, in my research, I've said, we've got to get back to that original treaty relationship that was based on trade and commerce. Okay, back then it was the fur trade. Back then it was Hudson Bay Company. But, but the reality is you can't have one nation dependent on another and call it nation to nation. Right. So when bands are able to get their fair share of the natural resources of our traditional territories, when we're able to get Indian affairs to do our leases quicker and quit putting these stupid rules, these hundred-year-old colonial rules on everything we do on the reserves, then we can start developing a real nation-to-nation relationship that's based on economic development. It's based on each nation being independent and self-supporting. How would you assess the Trudeau government's progress on these fronts? Well, I don't hang around the provincial or national scene. I, I look after the home base. Uh, as a chief, I spend the vast majority of my time on my own reserve. I love hanging around business people. That's what I do. I love creating jobs and making money. Uh, I love seeing the CCN band become a major economic player in the South Okanagan, which we are. And you can't do that if you're if you're trying to look after every national provincial issue. That's why we have tribal councils. That's why I was in Vancouver, and that's why we elected a national chief. They're the ones who are supposed to look after the national and provincial issues with, with our support and guidance, of course. But I believe every chief and council, their first, their first priority is looking after their own reserve and their own home base. And that's a full-time job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Israeli Indian Band is looked to as, as an example of what can be done, how nations can drive regional economic growth. So I'm curious, if we go back to 1985, when you were first elected chief, what was the economic situation like and, and what were some of your first priorities more than 30 years ago? Well, back then, I mean, it, so many of my pre, uh, previous chiefs and councils for the CCE band have been entrepreneurial. We, started, we were the first ones to ever get involved in the wine industry back in 1968. Back in 1968, we're probably one of the few First Nations that can put up their hand and say we had our own privately owned business. That was in 1968. Mm-hmm. And then in 1980, we were able to attract uh, Canada's biggest wine producer at the time to, from Ontario, Bright's Winery, which turned into Vincor, which turned into Consolations, turned into Altera, to have one of the, uh, the biggest wineries put on our reserve back in 1980. That was before my time. So we did, have, uh, we did have a foundation of economic development. We did have a foundation of creating jobs and making money. And in a lot, every time you create a business on a reserve, it's not just for Native people. I mean, so we employ hundreds and hundreds of non-Native people in every one of our operations, every one of our leases. And to me, again, that's the original treaty relationship which was a business relationship. Yeah, yeah. What's the lens that you try to apply? What's the, what are the criteria that you try to apply when, when people are approaching uh, you around establishing business there? Well, it's no different than, than Jimmy Patterson or any successful business person. You, you do feasibility studies, you analyze it. But, but on, on the reserve, I'll have to say this, the way I look at things, 
we do not want to become mere images of corporate Canada or corporate America. Yeah. We're going to, you know, sh- sure, we need balance sheets, we need accountants, we need the banks, we've got to do, you know, we've got to do the number crunching and all that stuff. But still, uh, my focus at the CS Indian Band is that First Nations have to do business, take corporate Canada 80% of the way safe, but still we're going to put 20% of our own culture, heritage, and uh, we, we do stuff in our, in our corporate model. Some call it socioeconomic development. Some call it community capitalism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're not just bottom line driven. We're not just thinking about money. We think about the environment. We've got thousands of acres of land that we could develop in a heartbeat on the east side of our city's lake, but we're not going to do it because mm-hmm. we have a social environmental responsibility as well. There's other things we do in our in our businesses that that have that First Nation impact. Do you have a sense of, of what kind of lesson could be learned in, uh, elsewhere around uh, applying that kind of criteria? Well, I mean, I would hope, and it's probably not going to happen, but, but on the reserves, maybe we can show Canada and corporate America, corporate Canada, how to properly do social economic development, where we're not just looking at the bottom line of of, of of the dollar amount, and we have to look at uh, most of our profits go to programs and services, and we keep businesses going even when maybe in the real world they wouldn't be going. Yeah, because we we want to keep the jobs going, and that that business provides a huge uh, social economic contribution to the city. Then. Mm-hmm. You launched this week a new corporate plan for 2018-2022, and you're targeting $36 million in revenue. What areas of growth do you see? What's going to get the band to that target figure? Well, we still have some prime uh, Lakeshore property developed. We have uh, tellers kicking our tires. We still have uh, um, hundreds of acres of fully serviced industrial commercial land to to lease out. It's all fully serviced. And that's what attracted some of our, our leases that we got off the, that happened with the last couple of years, like the provincial prison. That would not have happened and brought 350 jobs to our region if we didn't have the infrastructure already in the ground. So we still have, we still have fully serviced land available for lease. Uh, we still have Lakeshore property available for lease. And we hope to get involved in whatever sort of Cannabis is, is a big is a big discussion. We hope to attract some some cannabis uh, um, businesses to to our reserve. Mm-hmm. You have from your revenue tourist businesses, uh, businesses in vineyards, as you mentioned. There's quite a lot of diversity there, and you're in a good spot. I'm curious about bands that are maybe in more remote locations where there's a smaller population. It's not necessarily a tourist destination. But many of those First Nations, yeah, but many of those remote First Nations still have unsettled treaty uh, issues. They still have unsettled land claims. They still have impact benefit agreements. They can mm-hmm. uh, uh, work out with mining companies, forestry companies. And I always tell First Nations, you have to have a business or an economic development focus towards any land claim you're settling on a specific claim because that might be the last specific claim you've ever settled. Yeah. Make sure you have a business focus to it, attract business people. Even those remote remote First Nations still have uh, some economic opportunity. But but also for those that don't, I mean, the CCE band, for example, and, and we're not the only band that does this. Camel, I think of Camel CCE band, uh, Squamish, Squamish First Nation. There's a handful of bands in every province that can put up their hands and say, 
we're contributing to the, to the economy. We're creating thousands of jobs and making millions of dollars. We're part of the economy. It's not just Osudis doing this. Mm-hmm. In the last 10 or 20 years, more and more bands are starting to realize that, yeah, we got kicked off our economic horse. Yeah, we got turned into hanging around the fort, Indians. It goes back to that leadership model. piece. Now, yeah. now, now we've got to get back on our economic horse and realize the original treaty relationship and, uh, and we want to get back involved in the, in, in the economy of our region. I, I don't know how much uh, traveling you do elsewhere in the country, Chief, but uh, we we have a, a, a particularly, uh, uh, I think, advanced uh, economic uh, relationship and and uh, and and performance. I think in this province um, with our First Nations, what what do you think is holding the rest of the country up in trying to get what a lot of BC has? Well, the BC leadership, and we have we have, we have to give the, the First Nation BC a lot of credit for for getting them back on their economic course and uh, pushing the boundaries of you know the Supreme Court decisions uh, where 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 you know, we've won Supreme in BC. Many of the First Nations Supreme Court decisions come out of this province. Yes, because BC uh, bands have been very active in, in advancing their Aboriginal title and rights. Because we want to be part of the economy. Nothing. I don't care if it's pipelines, forestry, mining. It's it's not status quo anymore, like it was in the 50s, 40s, 60s, whatever. Now, every major company and every major bank has an Aboriginal engagement strategy. We never had that before. Okay. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. awesome to see that. And now we're starting to have our own economic development conferences. We we never used to have those before, but. Sure, we're behind. We're put behind on purpose by the colonial governments. But now First Nations, not just in BC, but across the country, are starting to realize that, hey, you know, we, we have a, this, this dependency relationship has never worked and will never work. Nation to nation means each nation has to have their own self-supporting economy. Yeah. That, that's rule number one. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations on the accomplishment. Yeah. Thank you. Chief Larry, a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. You too. That's Chief Clarence Louis the, from the Soyuz Indian Band. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and of course at BIV.com where you can find more business news. We'll be back tomorrow.